Welcome. We're going to have another session on the same passage we started last time. And there are a few characteristics that should distinguish us as believers from the rest of the world. Probably the best known one and the central one is we should be known for our love for one another. But another one that Paul gives us, I think, in this passage in Romans 13 is a sense of urgency, knowing the times and the anticipating of what God is going to do shortly. But before we do that, Katie, why don't you open us in a word of prayer today? Sure. Lord, we thank you so much for today. Um, I thank you for everybody here. God, I just pray that you um, keep them safe and healthy. Uh, throughout this next week. I pray for Ray's teaching today that we can learn from your word and be able to apply it to our lives and go and proclaim the good news to all who um, do the whole world. Um, Everyone needs to hear it. And uh, we thank you so much, Lord, for dying for sending your son so he could die for our sins and um, and offered salvation to the whole world. Um, so anyway, I thank you so much for uh, all that you've done for us and that the work is finished. And um, pray that you bless the time together now in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, last time we got into verse 11 and only got through two phrases, kind of bogged down on one little aspect of it. So I'd like to kind of pick up where we left off. So I'm going to kind of quickly go over a little bit of the uh, context, and then we'll get right into the uh, the passage again. It's a very rich passage, one that I think we kind of overlook, at least didn't strike me till I started studying it for you all, the significance of it, but we'll take a look at it. So we've been looking at Romans and God's provision of his righteousness. As Katie prayed, we praise him for dying. He's the basis for that righteousness. Provided for us, chapters 1 through 8, vindicating God's righteousness, 9 through 11, in relationship to setting Israel aside for a time, not permanent, but all of Israel will eventually be saved. And that's the doctrinal section. Then we have the applicational section that we've been looking at the last few weeks, starting with God himself, first two verses. If we have that relationship right, then everything else will fall into place, like our relationship to the church, our relationship to society, and our relationship to weaker brothers, and how do we handle Christian liberty. So chapter 13, we're looking at the last paragraph. There are three there, and on an outline, those three Parts include submission to authority, first seven verses, the summation of love, in other words, loving the citizens of the society, 13, 8 through 10, and we're looking at verses 11 through 14 today, the stimulation for living in light, and it is motivational or encouraging. That's why I use the stimulation to alliterate with the other S's there. And I introduced to you, in fact, I spent a lot of time on not only the significance of the times, but the four images, verse 11, significance of the time, but the four images that I think Paul uses in this passage 
And these images are not difficult to understand, but he uses them to kind of emphasize what he, the main thrust to encourage us along the lines of urgency. And one of the things that runs through the whole passage is the, the image of time. So he's using words, not only the word time itself in a more non-literal sense, but specifically hour. He's not talking about 60 minutes. And he's talking about night in a more non-literal sense and day. We started to look at that concept. In fact, that's where we kind of got bogged down last time. So I'll kind of go into a little bit more of that, but I'm going to do it a little bit more quickly so that we can get into the next image, which is the idea of awaking from sleep. And again, he's not talking about snoring or between the sheets, but he's talking about a sleep that is more metaphorical or more spiritual, you might even even say. Thirdly, he uses night or light and darkness as images relating to night and day. So the time frame, the night and day, he's using in the sense of light and darkness. But even that, he's using it in a more metaphorical sense of not turning on the switch in your bedroom there, but more light in terms of illumination and darkness in terms of the hiding or shading of that illumination. And fourthly, when we get down into some of the later verses in the paragraph, use the image of putting on clothes, setting aside some other garments and putting on some other clothes. And then I gave you kind of a composite of all of these images, probably also behind of his thinking, primarily from what he says in those last two verses. The uh, first century context of, of a soldier that uh, would be properly clothed, that needed to be alert, that oftentimes the night before the battle might try to relax, try to do something that would distract his thinking. And some of them would get into the culture and do the things that are described in verse 13 and would need to uh, wake up in the morning and be ready for the battle. He needs to sober up, you might even say. And it tells us he needs to put on the armor of light. So the imagery of armor of a Roman soldier and that armor is to equip him to be ready to fight the battle. And the night is almost over, so he needs to awaken and get ready to uh, face the, the enemy. And all of these are images that I think all of us are in the midst of as well. We're in a spiritual battle. We need to have the right clothing, the right armor. We are living in what Paul describes as the night Relating to the night, we're amongst a culture that is dark, that is in the darkness. But the encouragement is that uh, we need to know the times and know that day is about to dawn. So that's kind of the imagery behind all of the passage that we have here. And the passage starts out with a command, you might even say, or an imperative in the English now, I don't want to go over everything that we talked about, but in the Greek text, it's literally 
and this. In other words, he's adding to the encouragement he's already giving in terms of loving, loving the citizens, and this. Now, I think it's okay to translate it as an imperative because he is, in fact, encouraging us along certain lines. And he wants us to be aware of the times in which we live in, knowing the times. And this was characteristic of the time that Jesus lived in. We looked at the passage in Matthew 16, verses 1 through 3. I'm not going to read it again. But basically, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the reason they missed the Messiah is what Jesus says, is they can uh, do well when it comes to climatology, but do know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times. And in that same passage, when he uses the phrase signs of the times, he uses the word, the same word that we have in the Romans passage. So the encouragement is for us to be aware of the times in which we are living in, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees of the first century. In fact, all of the, the nation of Israel that was in unbelief. So that's what we want to do. I gave you a little bit of a look at the term. It's a different term. Uh, there are two terms, actually. Both of them are pretty common and used somewhat frequently in the New Testament. Kairos is the one that we have here. And that one is different from, uh, from Kronos. Kronos is kind of a more general, the outworking or sequence of time. So when you have a sequence of time, kind of the emphasis often refers to a time of day, but kairos can be used interchangeably as well and used in a similar sense. But it also has some uh, interesting usages in terms of not just spec a specified time frame, which we looked at, but uh, special occasions. And I gave you the example, Luke 4.13. But also, more specifically, it refers oftentimes, like in the passage we're looking at, to divine appointed times. And we got bogged down in the Luke 21-24 passage and spent a lot more time on it than what I anticipated we would. So we didn't get far enough into the passage. There were some other times that I wanted to call your attention hey. to. Can you just uh, kind of uh, summarize some of the discussion on that for those that missed it? Yeah, I'll, I'll get into it in this summary. I'll do it. Okay. Uh, I was going to briefly also talk a little about uh, other times as examples. And again, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on it because this passage is so rich. But if you study the concept of time... In, in fact, if you do a word study on not only kairos, but even these other words, and I've given you some of them on the, uh, the outline sheet there, the word hour, we'll see, is used in a similar sense. The word ages doesn't occur in this passage, but that's another word that is used. And these slides come from my eschatology course, where I outline some of the ages and just very quickly, there is references to the eternal. You might, I don't know if you want to describe it as an age, but a time frame or a reference to a kind of time that exists before 
other ages. Several passages refer to it. Ephesians 1, you might look that one up, referring to the present age in which we are living in, distinguished and in fact known about in eternal ages, as it refers to in that passage. There's one passage, and I don't want to get too much into it, because, but because it's in the book of Romans, Romans 5, 14 speaks of a time frame. So there's these references to these time frames as well. Without the usage of some of these words, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So a time frame from Adam until Moses. I don't want to get into all the details with that, but that's a distinguishing time that Paul at least distinguishes. And by the way, all of this is kind of the foundation and the basis why we we take a dispensational approach. We don't impose dispensationalism on the Bible. The Bible tells us that there are distinct periods of time that are different from one another in the dealings of God, in the program of God in the ages. And here is one and dispensationalists even see within this time frame uh, differences in the way that God is dealing with uh, mankind. There's other references. I won't look them up, but Paul also refers to a time between Moses and Christ, a time of law, and Christ is bringing in a time of grace. So there's a distinguishing feature between the law and the present time that Christ introduced. And we got bogged down on the times of the Gentiles. And I identified the times of the Gentiles as a very specific time frame. And I'll show you the chart or a chart in a moment. There's also references to Jewish times. And we had some hints of that in chapters 9 through 11 as well, but there's other verses that refer to Jewish times, which would be after the formation of the nation all the way to the time of Messiah or Jesus. And there are lots of references to past times in contrast to the present time that we are living in. And the times of the Gentiles, you can put on a timeline. And these are all slides that I just pulled up. So there's a lot of detail there that you can ignore. But last time we talked about the times of the Gentiles beginning in about 605 BC when uh, the Babylonians were in the process of destroying the nation of Israel. And now Israel is going to be dominated by these Gentile nations. And by the way, I don't know if we mentioned it, but Daniel... The visions that he has in the early part of the book, there's two sets of them, describe the major dominant totalitarian governments and empires that will dominate the nation of Israel beginning with Babylon. So I see the beginning of the times of the Gentiles, a phrase, by the way, that comes from what Jesus describes in Luke chapter 21 when he's discussing the uh, events preceding his second coming and also the second coming as well. And he talks about this times of the Gentiles. I see the end of it uh, continuing until he returns, the little arrow there establishing the kingdom when 
the nation of Israel will be again the prominent nation in world history. So that's how I kind of outlined the times of the Gentiles. That's what we discussed last time, Joe. And there were different things that were suggested as well. So you can plot all of these and in more detail, but the time we live in, we will we describe it as the church age. That's the present time. And that's the time that Paul is describing in this little passage in the Romans passage. And there's also a future time that he also is discussing. And there's lots of detail concerning that future age or future time that'll be different. In fact, it is radically different from the time in which we are living in. Now, there's a seven-year, at least a seven-year period that kicks off and transitions into a future radical different time when the Messiah returns. So this is just kind of a thumbnail sketch of the times or the ages that the Bible describes, and there's a lot more detail that you could add to that if, uh, if we had the time. So there's a future kingdom era radically different from the period in time in which we are living in today. That's not heaven. That's a specific time frame in world history. Heaven would be eternity. This is after a thousand-year period of, of world history, you might say, uh, the last period in world history. So that brings us to uh, verse 11, where we left off last time. Knowing the time that it is already the hour... Now, there's one of the words, another time word, already the hour for you to awaken and awaken from sleep. So two images, both relating to time, one, the specific hour that he's referring to, and he's not talking about 60 minutes here, and he's not talking about rubbing your eyes and rubbing the sleep out of them when he talks about awakening, but the whole thrust of the passage is to be aware, to be sober, and to be ready to face an enemy, and to do battle, and to be ready to face whatever we may encounter in that time frame. So let's take a look at at least one of the words. Let's look at our, since I've got it on your outline sheet. We looked at kairos, and now the Greek word for hour is hora. And some of you that study Greek, that has more significance. And again, the word is used in the general sense of an hour, and sometimes in reference to a literal specific time frame. And for the sake of time, we won't look all of these up, but it occurs several times when it talks in this parable that Jesus gives of these workers where the the master goes in verse 3, and he went out about the third hour. So it's used in a very specific, literal sense, third hour, six o'clock. And he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and now he's going to recruit them to do some work. And then again, verse 5, in the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same thing. And then verse 9, and when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received one denarius. So used in that literal sense of a 60-minute time frame. 
and even Mark 15, 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. And there's lots of usages in that very specific way. It's used also in a general unspecified time, not referring to 60 minutes or a specific hour of the day, but more general, more broadly, maybe a a longer period of time, you might say, uh, in a general sense, almost in the same sense as that first word, kairos. And then it's also used in this eschatological or divinely specified time. For example, John 5.25. And for the sake of time, let me just give you those and I'll have you look up some others. In fact, why doesn't somebody look up ahead of time Matthew 24? We'll get to that in a moment. And somebody else look up First Peter 4. And I'll give you the specific verses in a moment. But in terms of this usage of this future sense, uh, John 5.25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So it's used in this general prophetic sense Not so much a 60-minute time frame, but more a specific future time with the event in view. So somewhat metaphorical sense, but very specific time frame. And then in verse 28 of the same chapter, John 5.28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So there is a particular specific time when God is going to raise the dead is what Jesus is predicting here. And some of that will be associated with the second coming and perhaps uh, including the rapture when the dead will be raised, a very specific future hour, if you will, or eschatological time frame. And then in 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour Hora is used in that context. It is the last hour, just as you heard, that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last Hora, or the last hour. In other words, we're living in a period that is described as an hour. And again, it's used in this broader future eschatological sense that has already begun. There were Antichrist in the first century, and we're living in that hour, but there's a period in the future where a particular and a specific Antichrist, the ultimate one, will in fact appear. So that's the usage of the term hour, and we could say that the one that uh, Paul is using is maybe eschatological or it may be at least that general unspecified time. So it is already the hour. In other words, it is that time frame that I think 1 John is describing where we're living amongst a spirit of Antichrist, a spirit of false teaching, false doctrine, false concepts, false governments. And in that time frame, we are to awaken from sleep, awaken from sleep. This is a concept 
that uh, occurs frequently in uh, relationship, not only to the time frame we are living in, the rest of the world is in darkness. They are in the night. They don't understand the significance of the time. And we are called upon to uh, awaken from sleep. And some of the other context are the two passages that I, I mentioned. I don't know who looked up Matthew 24. Does somebody have that passage handy there? But these are similar contexts to what I think Paul is describing in calling upon us. Although the Matthew 24 passage is very specific in terms of a time frame, uh, the 70th week of Daniel that predicts the time frame when God is going to begin to work with the nation of Israel. But we are living in a time that may be leading up to that time. Who's got Matthew 24, 43 through 44? Everybody and nobody? I have it. Okay, go ahead, uh, Laurel. But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. At an hour you do not expect. In other words, at a time, a point in time, it's not going to take him 60 minutes, but a time, I'm going to mute you here, a time that he's calling those that live in that period of time to be aware and awake. And in a similar way, we are to be awake as well. We are to awaken. The analogy, and he uses the analogy of uh, if you're asleep, a thief can come and break in, and uh, we need to be aware of what's going on around us. And who's got First Peter 4, 7, first of all, 4, 7? I have. Sharon, go ahead. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Okay. The whole idea of being awake, being sober being aware, being ready. And he also uses this eschatological or future idea. And Peter is talking to people within the church age. So we are living in a time frame. And you might even say that beginning with the first century, this is the attitude that believers should always have. A sense in which at any moment the Lord can, in fact, bring about that resurrection that we looked at, that passage, that rapture. And our days are, in fact, numbered. And we need to live in light of First Peter 4, 7. Sharon, do you also have 5, 8, since you're in First Peter? Yes. Be of, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. Okay, again, same same words, same concept, being alert, being awake, and in that context, uh, referring to the, the, the battle, the war, the enemy that, in fact, seeking to devour us. So the reason we need to be awake and aware and sober, you might say, is we're in a battle. And if we're not awake, we're going to be overtaken and, in fact, suffer some consequences. 
So verse 11 is the encouragement to awaken. And he's going to give some reasoning for that. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now, we don't have to go into detail here to explain. In fact, I'll let some of you in what sense, we've talked a lot about this, is the word soteria. It's a Greek word there, the common word, common noun for salvation. In what sense is that word salvation used in this context? We've talked a lot about this. There's at least four senses, a literal sense in terms of deliverance from a physical danger. And then it's used in a spiritual sense in at least three senses. Can somebody give us at least one of those? And then somebody else give us the sense that we have here. Or maybe somebody can give us all three senses and then pick out the one that is used here. Anyone? Well, uh, it seems to me like uh, there, the three senses would be the conversion, uh, point of conversion, which would be justification. Past sense. And then, and then the point from that, from that point to the... Um, to death, which is sanctification, and then after physical death would be uh, glorification. But I think what's used here is the uh, point of conversion. Okay. okay. I would say he's referring to a future yeah. salvation here. Yeah. Yeah, because it's... I would say that... Because it's new. It says we, we believe. I think I see future in terms of the coming kingdom. Yeah. Or, um, yeah. A future deliverance. Yeah, it's because it's nearer to us. For now, salvation in the future. But uh, Joe laid out very clearly the three senses. There's a past tense at the moment of salvation for the individual. And the present tense the ongoing salvation from uh, deliverance from what we just read in 1 Peter 5, 8, from uh, not only temptation, but deliverance from uh, uh, being devoured by the enemy. And we are living now at a time frame that is closer. And remember, Paul is writing this in the late 50s AD, and certainly for them, each day that passed, they were closer or nearer to this ultimate glorification or the ultimate uh, coming of the Lord when we will be delivered from this present uh, world system. So that's the sense that he's talking about. The then when we believed is a reference back to that initial salvation. Janie, did you have a comment? Uh, let, me, let me clarify that that was what I was referring to when we first believed. Yeah, I'm sure that's... Conversion. So, sorry for the confusion. No problem. I think that's what you probably clearly meant. Misspoke a little bit. So, Kairos, our... Janie, do you have a comment? I was just wondering, could this also refer to the deliverance from wrath in the tribulation that will be raptured out? That could include that, yes. In other contexts, more specifically, yeah. But I think Paul is 
Yeah, Paul is here a little bit more general in terms of the of future, probably for the church age believer uh, reference to the rapture. But he also uses the word near in the context is nearer. This salvation is nearer. The Greek word egus, not egus, but egus. And we'll see in verse 12, he's going to use the verb form, egus, eguso. And both of them have the same idea. And again, these words are used, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but get to, I think, the sense that we have here. It can refer to being close in space or near in location. And the John nineteen twenty, we don't need to look it up, refers to uh, Jerusalem. In fact, it's in the context of Christ being crucified near the city, referring to Jerusalem outside the gates. It can refer to something that is near in time. And the John 2.13 passage refers to being near the time of the Passover. And then it can be used in terms of personally near, God being close, God being near. And we've all often spoken in terms of his omnipresence. He's, he's everywhere all the time. But there's also that sense of his nearness, the sense of his presence you can find that in uh, Romans ten, eight. The word is near you in your mouth. And then the Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The sense of God or the Lord being personally near. And in this context, it has this idea of eminence, which is very common. Now, we read, read the Matthew 24 well, we read a passage in Matthew 24, but uh, the 24, 32 to 33 passage is, now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near, near in terms of time. So you too, when you see all things, recognize that he is near right at the door, the second coming. Now in that context, that's in the Olivet Discourse, that's within the seven-year period of time, and in that time frame, the second coming is imminent. In other words, at any time, there's nothing that will stand in the way of its coming. It is imminent, and the rapture from our perspective, and what Paul is talking about here, this, this salvation, is imminent. And because of its imminent, now not near necessarily in time, but because it is imminent, we need to be prepared for it. And it's nearer than when we believed. So that's the significance of the times that we need to be aware of and be ready to face. And now he's going to give us more stimulation to put on the light in, in view of being aware of this time. And that's verse 12. And now he introduces the, the, the word night. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. And in this context, as he's using all of these time frames in a more non-literal sense, we would expect that the Greek word nux is also used in this non-literal sense. And we can go through our little word study again, 
looking at the usage. It's used, obviously, in a literal sense, lots of usages referring to literal night. Many of them are in a narrative context where it's talking about a literal time frame, but it can also be used as an image of darkness. In other words, the night is used in the sense of a time frame of darkness. Literally, the night is dark, and then spiritually or metaphorically, it can be used in that sense of a time frame of darkness. For example, John eleven ten. if anyone walks in the night, now, I think he's kind of combining there, this is Jesus, he stumbles, but then he is kind of applying it to a spiritual sense, because the light is not in him. So the contrast between night and light there. So I would say that if anyone walks in the night in terms of darkness, the light is not in him. And he's referring to, I think, in that context, spiritual light. So that's one example. Another example, somebody look up First Thessalonians, and you want to stay there because I'm going to refer to this passage uh, later as well. In fact, this is very parallel to what Paul is talking about in the passage we're looking at here. Anyone have that real quick? First Thessalonians 5. I have it. Go ahead, Sharon. Why don't you begin with verse 1, just to get the context. And notice it's in an eschatological time frame. And also notice he uses two time words, the two that we've already talked about. The first one is kranos, and the second one is kairos. Go ahead and read verse 1 first. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Okay, a reference to the outworking of time, kranos, and to these periods or these epochs or these ages. Paul has taught the Thessalonians concerning what we were discussing earlier, these different times that God is working, and they're aware of them. Now read verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Okay, so now he's using the word day, which we'll talk about in a moment. But now he also is contrasting the day and the night. In fact, why don't you keep on reading to, until you get to verse 5 to uh, see the parallelism see. here. While they were saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon suddenly. Uh, will come upon them suddenly, the labor pains, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night or nor of darkness. Okay, so now he kind of mixes the two to make it clear showing that he's using the word nukes or night in a more spiritual sense. And the contrast between the light brings out this idea of the night representing darkness or can be used in the sense of, of darkness. And then skip down to verse 7. Well, read 6 and 7. Well, you did read. Uh, no, read 6 and 7. There's the encouragement. You got it, Sharon? Nope. Okay, 6... So then, let us not sleep 
as others do. Was that, uh, who was that? Katie? Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were going to read it. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. You, do, you read it. I'd prefer you read it. Okay. Uh, six and seven? Yes. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Okay. Why don't you read eight, too? But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Okay. Notice the several images very similar to what we have in uh, this passage in, in Romans. Light and darkness, night and day, uh, sleeping at night not or not sleeping. We don't want to be those that are sleeping. Soberness. Even the idea of a helmet of salvation here. Lots of images that, that parallel what we're talking about here. So the age in which we are talking about here is we are living in a period of darkness, a period of night. And that's what he's talking about here. So a dark time that we are living in. We need to be aware of what that means and, and being aware of our surroundings and recognizing that we are in a spiritual battle and we need to be fully awake, fully sober, and ready to face the enemy because the enemy is prowling around. And if we're complacent, if we're not in fellowship, if in fact uh, we're just living like the rest of the world, well, not only are we not going to be effective in a lost and dying world, but uh, we are also going to be caught up in the things of the world that are going to be destructive to us as well, spiritually. Now, a similar chart here of God's program, and I've got a little bit other aspects to the Jewish ages. There's the origin of Israel. There's the emerging of Israel, the space that doesn't have a letter in it. The kingdom age, there's a specific kingdom age of Israel. There's a return after an exile. There's a blank space there, the exile there. And then there's another dispersion where Israel had been dispersed for 2,000 years. And then there's another return in 1948 leading up to when God is going to deal with them as a nation and a kingdom. And by the way, this is all of world history on one slide here. And then the bottom part, paralleling all of that, is a church age or a church period of time. And Paul is describing that as night. We're living in the period of night. Now, I extend the church age because the church in resurrected form will be a part of the kingdom as well. But uh, there's also a distinguishing time where the church will be removed from the earth and the night will be over. So this idea or concept is night. And we might say, how do we define the night? And how is Paul defining it? Uh, I think he's referring to the Messiah as the light of the world. And when the Messiah is gone, we are in the night. So when uh, Christ ascended, you might say that that began a period of night. And in 
the 50s when Paul writes the book of Romans, he's acknowledging we are in the night, but we need to live with a sense of urgency, knowing that the day is about to dawn. And that gives us insight in terms of of uh, the day, the meaning of what he's using the word day as. And if we had more time, uh, you might just jot these down. The age in which we are living in is described as an evil age, Galatians 1.4. It's described as an age of darkness, the passages we've been looking at. It's also a period of time where Satan is in control. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world is blinding the unbeliever. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So the unbeliever is in blindness, darkness, in the night. We've been called out of that control of Satan. Ephesians 2.2, 2. he's the prince of the power of of the air. Now, Peter, the passage we looked at earlier, explicitly describes him as a lion prowling about, as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians. And then the 1 John 5.19 speaks of the whole world being in the power of Satan himself. So this is an evil age that we're living in, an age characterized by darkness and Paul describes it as the night. And the day is near. So he's anticipating the arrival of day. And just like night, he uses chimera, the, the Greek word for day, in this non-literal sense. Uh, the word is used in a literal 24-hour or the light part of a day in some context. And just like night, it's used in an indefinite sense. And it's also used in this eschatological future sense in the passage that we are looking at. And more specifically here, when the light of the world returns, in other words, defining that period of time, the night time is between the first and second comings. When the light of the world returns, it's in contrast to the darkness and the evil the age in which we are living in. So the light of the world would will return. And in the meantime, if we are alert, if we are living a life of urgency, we can be little lights in the darkness, representing the light of the world. So the day represents when the Lord returns to bring light and to bring a new era, to be, bring a new time frame, And Paul says that that time is near. And we can plot our day here. So the Messiah is the light of the world. He died on a cross, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, promised he would return. And until he returns, we're living in what Paul describes as night. So paralleling the church age is a time of night. And when he returns, and particularly for the believer at the rapture, that'll be the day. But when he returns for the world, that'll be a period of time when a new era will dawn and the millennial kingdom will be a period of light as opposed to the darkness. So let's conclude verse 12 and, and then we'll pick up here 
next time. But this should give you a sense of what follows. In fact, verses 13 and 14 kind of expand what he's talking about in uh, verse 12. But here's some other verses. We'll save these for next time and pick up with looking at John 3, 19 through 21, uh, to kind of elaborate on this idea that Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus uses the same imagery. And we already read uh, that First Thessalonians 5 passage where Paul contrasts the day and the night and the light and the darkness and encourages us to be awake from the sleep. And we see that in uh, other passages of 2 Corinthians 4, 6, 6, 14, and also in an extended passage in Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. So these are images that are very common in the New Testament, and they are to encourage us along the idea of light. Well, let's stop there. Let me jump ahead here and look at our concluding slide. Pretty much the same one we ended last time. Uh, We should live a life of urgency, and that should be what is characteristic of us as believers, as different from the rest of the world that is asleep to the times in which we are living in. A life of urgency filled with light, because we represent the light of the world, and that's in order that we might be able to rescue as many as we can who are living in that darkness. Any other comments before we uh, have a little time of prayer here? Well, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for Sharon. Uh, Thank you for her ministry in Mexico and uh, the hard work that she's putting into um, translation. I just pray that uh, you help her figure out um, the the way that she can communicate most clearly um, the pure gospel of um, salvation and of grace and that uh, you give her the words in Spanish to use. So it's just total clear understanding. Um, so others can, and can learn about your love and, um, and, the Bible most clearly. God, I also pray for her physical strength, for her fingers. Um, I just uh, ask for you to um, give her the ability to, to work with her hands and um, just restore her, her strength in those four fingers, Lord. Um, I just praise you so much for her, her work and um, her diligence in, in serving you and glorifying you and um it's a privilege to be able to pray for her um so many miles away so thank you so much for sharon and um, i just pray that you continue to use her in um in all these ways 